Let's pray, and then let's uh, dive in. Father, we thank you for um, your word again as we come each week, and we ask you to enliven and open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to understand it, to give us good comprehension and recall. Lord, I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly uh, the things that uh, that I've seen and have learned um, and, uh, and do so in, in such a way that would be, would be helpful for these folks that they would love your word more and understand it better because when we understand your word, we understand you and serve you and love you more. So we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so with reading Dominion and Dynasty, has anybody read through Isaiah recently? Not recently? It just so happens, my Bible reading plan, like I'm right in the prophets right now, so I just finished Isaiah, and I'm in, but I've been in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, so I feel like that's all, <laughs> all I've read right lately is, is the prophets, but it's good, okay? So we're going to jump into Isaiah, and I think Isaiah, it is probably my favorite Old Testament book, and it is, I think, one of the most beautiful books in the Bible. Um, it is full of beautiful imagery and language. Um, it is a well-crafted book. When we just get into the structure of it and how Isaiah, uh, we'll, we'll see the cyclical nature of it as I talk about, uh, how it is, is put together, it's a beautiful book. It's a well-written document. Um, there are all of these images and types that Isaiah uh, introduces and builds upon, and then he will return to those things. So things are growing in the book of Isaiah. There is this interweaving, and all the prophets do this, but I think Isaiah does it exceptionally. Uh, the interweaving of judgment and future hope in the midst of a current historical event that's, again, you got to remember the prophets are always having these multi, they're looking at a, a mountain range, but within that mountain range, you see current events, future as far as, you know, the, the judgment of exile, future as far as Christ, future, future in the reign of Christ, and the, the new heaven and new earth. You have all of these different things encapsulated into the... Um, into the, to the prophecy or the oracle, and Isaiah does this just as a, a beautifully. So it's almost like this uh, a beautiful tapestry, right, where you have all these different colors and things woven together, which forms a beautiful pattern, and you step back and go like, wow, that's a beautiful picture, but you can look in at different parts and see different things. So it's a, a wonderful, wonderful book. The other thing that I think Isaiah is so important, especially for the New Testament Christian, is because Isaiah is used so much in the New Testament, uh, and that's another reason why we, we find, it, find it beautiful. And that's another reason why we're going to spend two weeks on it because of all of these, uh, the way the New Testament authors pick it up. Um, it's referenced explicitly 22 times, so it's referenced in the New Testament more than any other book, so more than Psalms, which is kind of an astounding fact. Um, and it's referenced twice as many times as any other Old Testament writer, so 22 times Isaiah is directly quoted, but there are more quotations than that, and there are allusions and other references to Isaiah, so one author has said perhaps up to 55 times Isaiah is referenced in the New Testament. So uh, quite a lot Isaiah is brought out in the New Testament. So because of this, some people have also called Isaiah the fifth gospel, right? And partly that's because of his expectations of the coming Messiah. When we get especially into uh, chapters 40 and onward, all those servant passages 
in Isaiah 53, right, which so clearly depicts the suffering of Jesus. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a prophecy just chock full of the reign of the coming king who's a descendant of David who will suffer and then who ultimately will rule over all of the nations. So it is a, it is a, a, a book about Jesus, ultimately, right, and about his, his coming kingdom, okay? Um, so we want to talk a little bit about Isaiah. Just by way of introduction, we'll spend a portion of our time tonight just introducing ourselves, familiarizing ourselves with the book of Isaiah, and then we'll try and get through the first 12 chapters tonight. But Isaiah, his name means Yahweh is salvation, and that sums up uh, the message of the book. Two of the most used words in this book are translated, he shall save and salvation. So those are uh, major themes and major words used in the book. I think I put in your notes this uh, uh, just background of, uh, from uh, Raymond Ortland, who said Isaiah's father was Amos, but the Bible says nothing more of him. Jewish tradition claims that Amos was the brother of Amaziah, king of Judah, putting Isaiah into the royal family. It's clear that Isaiah was a married man and father. He appears to have been a resident of Jerusalem. And Hebrews 11.37 may allude to the tradition of Isaiah's death being sawn in two under the persecution of Manasseh, the king of Judah. Okay, So that's a little bit about what we know about the man Isaiah and his family background and things like that. The when and where and to whom did he minister? So he was a prophet for 40 years. So if you remember, I think, what, Jeremiah was like 52 years, something like that was his, the length of his prophecy. Isaiah, a long time as well, 40 years, ministering primarily to the nation of Judah. Okay, so again, the southern kingdom, there's that division, Israel's in the north, Judah is in the south, and he is largely in Jerusalem, although his ministry, again, is not confined just to Jerusalem and Judah, but will encompass the whole nation as well. I need my Bible over here because I can't have all my notes in my Bible on there, okay? Uh, he ministers during the reign of four kings, Uzziah or Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So we'll just kind of briefly touch on those. If you go back and read like First Kings, or no, it'd be Second Kings or Chronicles, you can read about the events of these kings again. Um, 1 Kings 15, 2 Chronicles 26 record most of the information about Uzziah. Um, he was a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However, one of the uh, negatives to him and many of the kings was that the people still worshiped at the high places. Second <clears throat> uh, Chronicles 26.5 says, He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So uh, we're probably most familiar with, with Uzziah, or the name Uzziah, because of Isaiah 6, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So we'll get to that passage in just a minute. <coughs> Excuse me, I have something in my throat. A tickle. Okay, Uzziah reigned for 52 years, so he had a long reign. The other things that we need to know about him, uh, under his reign, Judah really flourished. The nation of Israel was really prosperous. Uh, so he built extensively. He had a really large army. Uh, a large number of herds. He was a, a farmer, so he had great fields. And he was quite the engineer. Second Chronicles 26.15 says this, In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones 
and his fame spread far, for he was marvelous, marvelously helped till he was strong. So maybe they're talking about those uh, trebuchets or something like that, you know, some sort of cool defense mechanism, right? So kind of get an idea of what the kingdom was like under him. However, his reign uh, came to the point where he was proud. He tried to burn incense in the temple, and because of that, he was struck with leprosy, and therefore his son Jotham ruled in his place because he was a leper. Remember, lepers were kind of removed from the community. Okay, So Jotham comes after Uzziah, and he largely follows in his father's footsteps. He does what is right. He continues some of the building projects that his father had, had started. And then again, under his his reign, the nation is prosperous and flourishing and doing quite well. Ahaz is the son of Jotham, and he is kind of the opposite of his father and grandfather. He does not do what isn't right in the eyes of the Lord. So we'll get to uh, Isaiah's encounter with Ahaz in chapter 7. He leads Judah down the paths of idolatry. He follows in the paths of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, his army is going to be defeated by the king of Syria and the king of Israel in battle. You can go read about that again in Second Kings. There's alliances that are made between Syria and Israel, and we'll also touch on that uh, later. Second um, Chronicles 28, 22 says this, In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz, For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. and every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his father. So he's an idolater, not a good guy. So when we get to Isaiah's interactions with that, we can, we can kind of have a an idea of who Ahaz was. And the last one is Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good and a godly king. He reigned for 29 years. Um, He sought to cleanse the land from the pollution of idol worship that Ahaz had brought in. And Hezekiah, uh, his work was primarily spiritual in restoring proper worship, uh, observing the Passover, removing the idols, tearing down the high places. And again, Hezekiah, he's the one that the writer of Kings says, uh, there was no other king like Hezekiah who served the Lord, uh, even before, like up to David and after David. No other king like Hezekiah. So he was a really good and a godly king. Under his reign, the, the event of the day was Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invading Jerusalem, or invading Judah, and uh, uh, this is going to create, we'll get to this in the second half of the book, but Isaiah comes to reassure Hezekiah that, that uh, Judah will not fall to Sennacherib and Assyria, and so unfortunately, though, by the end of this, uh, Hezekiah's fame grows, and he becomes proud, and ultimately, the Babylonians come in and see all the wealth of the kingdom, and ultimately, the Babylonians are the ones that carry away uh, Judah into captivity, okay? Um, so again, like Uzziah and Jotham, Hezekiah as well, this is kind of the, the cultural setting, I guess, we want to understand. Israel is kind of fat and prosperous and wealthy. They're pretty uh, content in what they are, um, and that is going to create some problems, okay? So those are the kings that Isaiah ministered under. The other 
world powers we need to keep in context at this time because the Lord is always dealing with other nations and dealing with Israel through other nations. So we want to understand Syria and Assyria. Okay, So Syria, think of Damascus, think of modern-day Syria, and Assyria, we're thinking of Nineveh, which is further to the north of Syria. Okay, Those are the, uh, the world powers at that time. Uh, let's talk about the division of the book. So you can broadly divide it into two, two sections, chapters 1 through 39, coming judgment on Judah and Israel, chapters 40 through 66, grace and salvation. So those chapters 40 and onward really are all future-looking in their orientation, looking toward, again, the, the new creation. You can also divide it on a historical timeline. This comes from Raymond Ortland again. Uh, chapters 1 through 39, so I, uh, Israel's and uh, Isaiah's immediate context, so dealing with Israel's pride uh, and their sin of idolatry. And then chapters 40 through 55, looking forward to the Babylonian exile and God's glory being revealed through judgment. And then chapters 56 to 66, looking forward to a future time, a glorious kingdom for all the worshipers of Yahweh and that time of final judgment for the unrighteous there. And in that new creation, that that period of time, Israel will truly be what it was meant to be. Okay? So that's the broadly you can divide it into those two two sections though, one through thirty nine and forty through sixty six. The other thing I always think is is helpful, at least for me, to compare, is prophets to themselves. Okay, so we've kind of summarized uh, them in different ways. Jeremiah, remember, we said was the weeping prophet because uh, he he ministered during that time where Judah is besieged by their enemies and uh, the city has fallen, and he has such a difficult message to deliver, and he suffers such great persecution and loss. So we, we call him the weeping prophet. Ezekiel is that prophet of the visions of God's glory. He had all the, you know, the crazy uh, chariot, mobile throne chariot, whirling wheels, all of that kind of stuff. He's seeing all of these different visions. So Ezekiel is, is different in, in his prophecy in that way. And Isaiah is the prophet who reveals to us the holy God who judges and saves. So Isaiah, he takes place uh, several years before either Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Okay, So he's writing uh, that map deal that you have, should give you a time, time frame, right? In the 700s, um, is is during his his reign. So if you think uh, Judah went into uh, the the fall of Jerusalem was in 586 BC, I believe it was. So here Jeremiah or Isaiah starts his ministry, uh, what 150 years prior to that, somewhere in that range. I can't do math on the fly. Uh, that's why I'm a pastor because I'm not good at addition and subtraction and things like that. Uh, but, but Isaiah was quite a bit earlier than both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And again, he's, he's ministering before the kingdom of, of Israel has even gone into exile. That will happen during his, his ministry. If you have that, uh, if you're looking at that chart, you see that happens right about in the middle of his, of his ministry. Okay, But Isaiah is um, writing about Again, the holiness of God, chapter 6, will really bring this out as we see this in his call. But he, he brings judgment, but he also brings salvation. And so Isaiah seems to focus on the salvation that God is going to, to bring uh, more than, than some of the other, other prophets do. 
Um, some major themes, I think, that we see in the book, and these are not in any particular order, but just uh, themes that we see. And again, at a lot of the prophets, you have some, some similar themes across them. So the first one is the sin of Judah and Israel. Every prophet focuses on <laughs> the sin of the nation. That's kind of like a, kind of a, a major thing that they're supposed to do. However, Isaiah focuses on the sin of pride that the nation had more than, more than anything else. Uh, he addresses their idolatry, their trust in other nations, and their rebellion and against uh, rebellion against Yahweh. So, just think: the nation is proud; they're fat and happy; they're settled in the land, and they're they're going through the motions of worship, but ultimately they're not worshiping with with right hearts. Okay. The second theme would be the Lord's judgment on all sinners. Uh, again, judgment is not reserved just for Israel. The Lord will judge and punish all the other sinful nations as well. So we'll see several chapters that are devoted to that. And ultimately, the judgment of the Lord is culminated in the day of the Lord, which we think about you know, in, in uh, New Testament language, like the great white throne judgment, like scenes we'd see like in Matthew 25, right, where uh, everyone will be gathered before him and he'll separate the sheep from the goats. Uh, that's the, the same kind of idea. Uh, the third theme would be a glorious kingdom or the new creation coming. And Isaiah, again, I think describes this in greater detail than any other prophet does. He talks about this kingdom, how it is established, who, what king it is that will be ruling over it, and how it is to be a comfort to God's people, right? So when we get to chapter 40, you know, and he, he starts this section with comfort, comfort my people, and then goes into essentially 26 chapters of what this will look like. The fourth theme is the servant of the Lord. So this is a theme that uh, Isaiah really develops again, because remember, Israel was a servant of the Lord, and prophets at times were servants of the Lord. But Isaiah says, no, this is a future coming person who will be a servant of the Lord. And ultimately, we understand that is Jesus. Um, Israel failed to be that servant. But this coming servant of the Lord will perfectly obey. He will suffer and die for sins. He will rule and reign as king forever and proclaim the glory of God. So he will do all the things that Israel failed to do and that Adam failed to do and all of these other uh, forerunners uh, failed in. He will do perfectly. And then the final uh, fifth theme, major theme I think we find in the book is Israel's future restoration. I do think we see the Lord will restore a remnant and they shall glorify God and all the nations shall glorify God for what he has done through them. How that all pans out in the end, I don't know, but I think we see that pretty clearly uh, in chapter 60 especially. You see this uh, future restoration uh, spoken of there. The other thing I want to touch on here before we jump into the book is just the experience of reading the book. So this is something I thought about. If, if you're to try and um, you read through the book and you, you get done with it and you're like, how would I describe the experience of that? Think about, uh, I suppose you could do that with, with any book. And again, it's going to be just kind of themes or things that jump out. So these are things that jump out to me uh, in the experience of reading Isaiah. Paul House, and I think I put this in your notes as well, he, he talks about how Isaiah is a wonderful challenge, which it is. It's a, it's a, it can be a challenge to read, but he says this. He says, the prophecy links the remnant in the future, 
the eternal nature of the Davidic kingdom and the contemporary sins of that institution and the interaction between God and the Gentiles in ways not yet seen in the canon. The meshing and shaping of the new and the old makes Isaiah a formidable theological document. Okay, so there's lots of things that are future and things that are past. There's new concepts that are introduced. So it's, it can be a bit of a challenge. Okay, but here are some of the things that, I, that jump out to me as I think about the experience of reading it. I should expect to see these things when I'm going through it. And the first one is cyclical. That was the first word that came to mind. And I think about that in terms of Isaiah seems to touch on a subject, go to another one, and then come back around. So it's very cyclical, which as I understand, like I'm not a, uh, an expert on the way people think, but the Jewish mindset is often that way. They're not as linear. They're much more cyclical, right? So they'll talk about a subject, move on to another, and then come back to it and build upon that. Isaiah seems to do that. And I think you see this in, in the first seven chapters. This is kind of the, the, the way it works. So chapters, chapter one, you see judgment, and then it moves to salvation, and then back to judgment. And then by the time you get to, to chapter two, you're back to salvation, and then chapter two through four is more judgment. And then chapter four, you've got more salvation. So it's just this, this cycle where you're going back and forth. And you kind of see that throughout the book. And the same thing happens with, with uh, future and current events, right? So here's a current historical moment, but here's a future one. And then we're back to the current historical moment. So if you keep the, that cyclical nature of the book, maybe it'll help you understand a little bit more of what, what is going on here. The second thing that jumped out to me was continuity. I think that Isaiah has the longest prophecies <laughs> of anybody else, or at least for me, it's hard to distinguish where they start and stop. That's also what makes them so beautiful, that they just flow together seamlessly. Um, so say, for example, chapters 12 through 36, it's really hard to distinguish a good break in there. Like, you know, you remember how Ezekiel was uh, broken up Every prophecy began with a date, right? On this day, on this month, I was in this place and I had this vision. And then here's the vision. And then he have another date and time. So it's setting all those things off. Isaiah doesn't really do that. It just goes. And you're kind of left to determine, in a sense, where the starting and stopping, stopping place, places are. Chapters 40 through 66 are the same, same way. They just seem to run all together into one giant prophecy with no real clear uh, breakdown in, in between. Okay, but that's what, what makes it, that's what makes it beautiful, but it's also difficult. And you would know this because if you sit down, if you're, so like for myself, right now my daily Bible reading is in Jeremiah, but it'd be the same way in Isaiah. If you have a 26-chapter oracle and you're jumping into the middle of it and reading two chapters a day, it's a little hard to get your bearings right? You know, the context is missing. So if you can understand, okay, this is part of this 26-chapter oracle, then I can place myself a little bit better, okay? The third point is Isaiah's looking to the future. Again, I think more than any of the other prophets, Isaiah is looking well beyond his day to the dawning of the new creation. I think that's what he's looking forward to. Um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they spend a lot of time 
prophesying about exile and restoration back to the land. So as we'll see that restoration under Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezekiel's like, hold on, let's go way past this to the glorious day that Jesus is reigning and ruling as, as king. Okay? And I think that's, again, where chapters 40 through 66 really emphasize. The final thing is the imagery in the book of Isaiah. And it is rich, and it really enhances your understanding of the book when you understand what is going on there. I put a definition from Jim Hamilton about imagery, uh, and it's simply that the images the Bible uses are meant to give real-world illustrations of abstract concepts. Okay, um, All of the prophets use imagery, but I think Isaiah and his uh, tree-like imagery is the best. So if you think, when you're reading through Isaiah on your own, look for every reference to a tree, a stump, a root, a branch, a vine, all of these different things are being used by Isaiah to help you understand a real-world concept. And as we're going to see, most of these are going to relate to essentially the growth and establishment of Jesus as king. Um, you You could really, I think in Isaiah, just find all of these passages and about tree, vine, stump, root, branch, language, and you could tell the whole story of Isaiah just through those images and kind of walk through the book, see that develop and progress, and would have a pretty good understanding of what Isaiah is doing. So the, the imagery of the book is really uh, important, and if you can understand the context, who he's describing, what it is that is the tree, the branch, the root, things like that, you'll be able to understand the, the whole setting. Does that make sense? Or it totally lost you. <laughs> All right. Okay, so that's the, what I would describe. Those are the things that came to my mind as I was thinking about the experience of the book. So let's jump into the outline of it. And we're not going to, like I say, we're only going to, Lord willing, get through the first 12 chapters tonight because I want to walk through this just a little bit slower because uh, there's so much here. So chapters 1 through 5 are judgment against Israel. And how we'll do this, we'll just kind of walk through and I'll point out things and verses. So have your Bible open and just be looking at these verses. But it begins with Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, he begins by calling witnesses. Um, look at uh, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So that language of, of hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. This goes back to Deuteronomy 4, uh, verse 26 where uh, the, uh, Moses is saying, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. So you remember when Israel entered into a covenant, uh, they would set up like monuments or different things like that that would attest to the fact they've entered into a covenant. And in this particular in- instance, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is saying, the heavens and the earth will testify against you on the day of judgment. So if you almost think like this is the introduction of a, of a courtroom scene, right? And here, the Lord has brought in a witness to, to bring a charge or to, to stand against Israel's sin, and he's saying, the heavens and the earth are testifying against you and your sin in covenant breaking, Okay, so that's kind of where we, we're, where we begin with, is that creation itself is testifying against Israel that they've broken the covenant, okay? So this indictment begins, uh, verse 2, Yahweh's child has rebelled against him. 
This child is a sinful, laden nation. They are laden with iniquity. They have despised their father. And verse 4 says that he is the Holy One of Israel. This is the, the charge that is being made. So then there's a question uh, that, that is posed. Well, why will they be struck down? Why will they continue to rebel against the Lord? And verse 5 says it's because they are sick. From head to toe, they are sick. Verse 11 tells us that they continue to perform sacrifices. Yet this uh, work of sacrifices in the temple, verse 12 tells us it's a trampling of Yahweh's courts. So the, the idea is uh, they're, they're still going through the motions of worship, but this is how the Lord views it. You're, 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 uh, you're polluting my, my house, okay? Verse 15, though they hold out their hands in prayer, Yahweh does not hear them, for their hands are full of blood. So the Lord truly sees their hearts and sees their actions for what they, to, they truly are. So this leads us to verses 16 and 17, where the Lord says, repent and cleanse yourselves. And then this is, so this is all the judgment. And then we have this switch. Verse 18, we get a message of salvation, right? So here's a hope for cleansing. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Okay, so this is that message of salvation that the Lord is bringing through Isaiah. Okay, and in, in this whole first 17, 18 verses, I think the whole nation of Israel is in view here. This isn't just Judah. This is not just Israel to the north. This is the whole nation is uh, viewed this way. And then we get to uh, chapter 1, verse 21, and he, he shifts, and he's uh, focusing in on Jerusalem and judgment on Jerusalem. So why is now Jerusalem singled out for a focus on judgment? Well, it's because that was, remember, the city where the Lord had chosen to make his name dwell. Remember, that was the blessing that Israel had for being Yahweh's people and for living in covenant with him was to have his presence, his name upon that city, okay? But what does the city become? Well, 121 says the faithful city has become a whore. It's become a, a prostitute. Injustice, corruption, bribery, unrighteousness are what it is now known for, and that's what he goes to list. So, Look at one twenty four and 25. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. So here comes the judgment, right, for, for their sin. So this is describing the Jerusalem, which was once, you know, the... Uh, and will be again the place where Yahweh's name is dwell, now it's become his enemy. Right? They are his, his foe. He has put his hand against them. Look at 131. It says that sinners shall be fuel for the fires of judgment. Right? So like wood in a fire. This uh, 26 and 27 tell us that the purification of judgment will bring about restoration and redemption. And so the faithful city, as 121 says, has become a whore, but that's not the end of the story. So here we get to chapter 2, and here we have it, that cyclical nature happen again. Here's future salvation, okay? So Isaiah's vision doesn't look just forward to judgment, but looks forward to restoration. Jerusalem will be a city which the nations flow to, and out of it shall go the law, verses 2 and 3. 
Uh, verse 4, the future of righteousness for the city and a future of peace. Okay? These are all contrasted with its current state, right? that it's full of unrighteousness and bribery and corruption. That's what it's known for, but in a future day it won't. So verse 5, look what he says. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. This glorious future is to serve as a motivating factor for the people of Israel right now in Isaiah's day. Hey, this, is, this, doesn't, this isn't our end. Like We want to be pursuing that right, right now. Okay. Then uh, he, he shifts again in verse 6. Uh, Isaiah, uh, Israel's idolatry in verse 7 says that it has brought about their rejection, and that is going to culminate in the day of the Lord, verse 12, which is a day of judgment. And in that day, verse 17 says, that day of the Lord, the, the Lord will lay low the proud, and the Lord will be exalted. Okay, that's what that day of judgment will do. Yes? Right. No, I'm saying that is, yeah, that is future looking, right? So for the, right, futures, right. Because I mean, we're, we've not yet reached a day where uh, they're beating their swords into plowshares. Because this will happen too, I think, in chapter 11, where we have, see that similar language of the lion laying down the lamb and the child over the hole of the cobra. Uh, all of that, this is, yeah, yet a future uh New creation, the kingdom, it's, it's looking forward to that. But I think what he's, he's trying to do is, if you think about a, a faithful Jewish person that sees the, the sin of the nation, listens to Isaiah's word and believes that there is judgment coming, and they could go, well, has the Lord forgotten his promises to us, right? And in here Isaiah is saying, no, he hasn't. This is the future, uh, so right now let's do what's right. You know, let's let's walk in the light of the Lord right now as we look forward to that day that all things will be made right. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think that's what he's what he's getting at there. And that's what, again, that's what makes it kind of challenging because he's got these real future-looking orientations in the midst of a current context. But it also applies to the current context as well. Okay? Good question. Uh, okay, so we are in uh, chapter 3. Okay, so he, he's talking about this day of the Lord that is coming. So chapter 3 describes the conditions in the city on the day of the Lord. So now this is where, again, we, we have to understand the historical context. That day of the Lord is going to come first in judgment on, on Judah, right, through the Babylonians. And here he talks in chapter 3 about the city being short on bread and supplies, not having an army, People will oppress one another rather than help one another. So you see that in verse 1, verses 2 and 3, verse 5. Verse 8 says this day of judgment, the stumbling of Jerusalem, is because Jerusalem and Judah are against the Lord. Now, the thing that my mind draws to is, remember the prophecies in Jeremiah that talked about uh, in that day of the Lord, like they're going to be eating one another, right? And there will be no food in the city. And it was a horrible situation. Well, Isaiah, I think, is talking about the same thing, right? It's that same coming day of the Lord in judgment where they're led off into into exile. At the same time, there's also a future, future day of the Lord, a day of judgment which has not yet come, okay? 
verse 13, the Lord's day of judgment is like a day in court. The people are held accountable for their treatment of the poor. Look at verses 14 and 15. Their wealth and their pride will be replaced with rottenness and with reproach. You see that in 3.16 through 4.1. Then we get to chapter 4 and verse 2, and we see that the judgment will function like a pruning. Okay? Israel is the branch of the Lord. So here's your uh, branch, vine, tree imagery that we want to pay attention to. Verse 2, it says that that branch of the Lord will be pruned so that it bears fruit. But this comes because the Lord has cleansed them through judgment and burning. 4.4, we see that. This cleansing allows the presence of the Lord to reside on Mount Zion again. You see that in 4.5. The Lord will create over the whole of Mount Zion, uh, the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. Okay, what does that language of cloud and fire remind you of? Moses, the Exodus, the wilderness, the Lord's presence in those those days. So again, you're looking forward to a day when the presence of the Lord is dwelling in his people. And then um, Jim Hamilton brought this out, that idea of the canopy over it uh, could be picturing like a, a wedding in the sense that you know how in Jewish weddings they stand underneath that canopy thing and they crush the, crush the glass. So that can be uh, pictured here as well. Verse 6, Yahweh will be Israel's shelter. Right? So think about all the language where uh, is, the Lord is the rock, the shelter, the refuge, all of those things. So again, Yahweh will be the nation's shelter. Okay? Um, <coughs> and then we get to chapter 5. And we have the song of the vineyard. And this is, again, another uh, important agrarian term, a tree, vine, branch, root, stump reference. Uh, this is an illustration that, that Isaiah uses, uh, much like, remember, Jeremiah has several of these where he uses a, uh, a, it's kind of a story told through an image. Israel is a vineyard planted by the Lord in fertile ground. We see that in 5.1. Um, all the work has been done to produce grapes and wine. We see that in 5.2. But what happens in verse 4, only wild grapes are produced. So if, if all this work has been done, uh, it should produce the right kind of fruit to make wine. What should you do? Uh, verse 6, it's a waste. What can you do with it? You must. It cannot be pruned. It has to be destroyed. So that's what uh, Israel is. Right? They are, in a sense, they are that vine planted. And you think about even that, that imagery, uh, the nation was planted by the Lord in the land, and they had everything they needed to produce and flourish. They had his law, they had the prophets, and what happened? They're that unfruitful, wild vine. And so here the Lord is coming in in fires of judgment uh, to... to, uh, to destroy them, ultimately to restore them. And then we see woes in chapter 5, starting like in verse 8. And these are words of judgment. So the Lord is showing how Israel is expending energy on things that will come to nothing because of the coming judgment. So you're doing uh, all these different things, but it doesn't matter. Judgment is coming, verse 10 says. Um, He says, Woe to those who have exalted and celebrated things that Yahweh detests, I uh, see this like in 5, 11, 18, 
and 20 through 23, and these things are like drunkenness, lying, calling evil good, pride and injustice, right? So the Lord hates these things, but what is Israel? Oh no, it's good. He loves drunkenness. He loves lying. He loves, right? So they're, they're attributing to Yahweh things that he hates. And then look at 526. The Lord will raise a signal to call other nations to come and execute judgment against Israel. And that image, that idea of raising a signal, we'll see that in just a few chapters, where another signal will be raised, but not for judgment, this time where the nations will flow to Jerusalem and will worship there, okay? So that leads us to chapter 6, and we here we have Isaiah's call. And it's interesting, uh, in contrast with Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both those books begin with the call of the prophet. Isaiah's doesn't come till, till later on, okay? So he receives his call in the year that King Uzziah died. Remember, Uzziah was a, 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 and under his reign is prosperous. The nation was secure and wealthy. Uh, and so there was a bit of uh, maybe disquiet in the heart of the peoples because uh, he was a good king who had reigned for 52 years. But what this vision receives, uh, that, I, that Isaiah receives, is that he sees who is the true king that is seated upon the throne. It's not Uzziah, it's the Lord, right? His glory far exceeds the glory of any earthly king, so why should Israel glory in their earthly kings, right? Here's the the one who is the true king. So Isaiah, he is overwhelmed by this scene, right, in verse 5. He says, Woe am me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And he is keenly aware of his sinfulness. And the Lord responds and says, I have atoned for your sin. Your guilt is taken away from. And in response to this is Isaiah's, uh, the Lord's, that question, uh, who will go for me? And Isaiah's response, here am I, send me. So this is his, his commission that we have. So really you see verses 1 through 7, his vision of the Lord, and then verses 8 through 13, his commission. And it, it, this, this is where we see what Isaiah is told to do. You remember with Jeremiah, he had that message that was to build up and to tear down and to restore, or how it build up, pluck down. Anyway, it was essentially that. This is Isaiah's message. So look at uh, verse 9. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So Isaiah's job is actually to harden their hearts and to blind their eyes. This is confusing, but this is what the Lord has called to do. His message will actually blind them and dull them. And then we have the duration. How long, O Lord? Verse 11, and he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Okay, so here I think he's talking about exile. Until exile comes, you know, you think about at the end of Jeremiah, And when we get to Lamentations and it's describing what the land is like, it's barren. Nobody's living there. It's it's a wreck. So Isaiah is to continue to prophesy until that time comes. Then look at verse 13. There will be a remnant in the land who will be purged again. And so he says, though a tenth remain in it, that'd be the remnant, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, 
the holy seed is its stump. Now, this verse is really uh, an important and a critical verse because I think this is our first real important tree, stump, root, branch verse, right? Because the nation of Israel is here compared to a felled tree, right? It's a tree that has been knocked down, cut down. The only thing that's left in the ground is a stump. But there's a seed in that stump, the holy seed. There's life that is still in that. And we're going to see that life grow forth into, ultimately, Jesus, okay? So keep in mind this idea of a felled tree and a stump, and we'll get to it here in just a minute, okay? Chapters 7 through 12, uh, we get to the threat of Assyria and the hope of a future king, and we'll finish up with, with this. And again, this is one of those unique prophecies that jumps all over in time, all right? Um, there are immediate promises as well as future promises and the, the future promises of the Messiah. And ultimately, what we see here is that the immediate promise of deliverance to the nation of Judah has a much uh, greater deliverance in mind as it's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Uh, so the situation is this, chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, Judah is being attacked by Syria, who has allied themselves, allied themselves with the northern kingdom of Israel. And so this, again, causes some disquiet in the heart of the people of Judah and specifically in King Ahaz. So Isaiah goes to Ahaz, verses 7 through 9, and says, Don't fear the plotting of Syria and Israel, for both of these nations are soon going to be destroyed by Assyria. Okay, remember, Assyria comes in and destroys Israel, and that's who carries them off in, into captivity. So, verse 10 the Lord says to Ahaz, I will, you're, you're concerned about this. I will bolster your faith. Ask me a sign to prove uh, that what is going to happen to you and to Syria and Israel will come to pass. So ask me a sign, any sign. He says, make it as deep as heaven or uh, uh, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. But what is Ahaz's response? I will not ask a sign, right? I will not weary my God by asking him a sign. Ultimately, he is proud and arrogant is what he's doing. He's misusing scripture in this context is what he's doing. And so verse 14, the Lord gives him a sign. This is a passage that we know well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so what is this passage doing? Well, we know ultimately who is Emmanuel. It's Jesus, God with us, right? But what is that promise doing in the middle of a prophecy and a, a, a fear of a future invasion by Assyria or by Syria and Israel? Okay. Well, I think this is kind of what's what's going on here. Um, I think there is first a contemporary birth of a child that is referenced here, and I think that is uh, the the. This child that it says, if you go on and read in chapter 7, um, this child, before he knows how to refuse evil and choose good, so at a very young age, Assyria will come up against Judah. So you can see that in 7.17. And I think this contemporary child is probably Isaiah's own son, Mayor Shalhal Hashbaz which I, I think that's what we'll probably, if we have a son, that's probably what we'll name him, right? Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. Jenna doesn't know that yet, but submit. I know, it makes sense to me too, right? Uh, a good name, strong name, okay? Uh, this child, 8-3, we see when, when this child is born, 
that Syria will fall to Assyria, okay? And then we have in chapter 8 this this picture, uh, especially verses 5 through 8, that this coming Assyrian army that is coming against Israel and is coming against the nation of Syria is pictured like a flood of waters that is coming against these nations, okay? However, in verse 12 of chapter 8, many will call the word of the Lord a conspiracy, saying, we shouldn't listen to this. This is all, this is all hogwash. And so Isaiah and other believers of that time are instructed not to join them or to fear what they hear. Rather, verse 13 of chapter 8, Isaiah and all the others should fear and honor the Lord. Verse 14, when the Lord is feared rightly by his people, he is a sanctuary to his people and a stone of offense to his enemies. Okay, So all of this, again, is in the context of Ahaz is fearful about an attack from his enemies, and the Lord is saying, no, here's a promise of future deliverance. And it's a contemporary child, and then we're also going to see it's a future child, an even better future deliverance, okay? Make sense? You're tracking with me so far? Kind of? All right. Uh, Look at it, chapter 8, verse 16 through 22. So here Isaiah pictures for us people who trust the Lord, and love the word. And so what he says like in verse 19 is that instead of going to mediums and necromancers, they go to the words. That's where he's like, to the teaching, to the testimony. I'm gonna go to the word of God. I trust that alone rather than what other people are saying, okay? Uh, Verse 20, oh, verse 22, those who reject the word, they will look to the earth, but behold, all they see is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, right? They, they're the ones who are saying, this is a conspiracy. They're not believing the word that, that the Lord has delivered through Isaiah, okay? So then that gets us to chapter 9. Uh, there is a darkness that is coming upon the land through the Assyrian invasion of Israel, and that will one day lead to light, okay? So Isaiah 9, 1 the land that was the first to be trampled will become glorious. It will have light shown upon it, 9-2, and the burden of the oppressor and its armies will be gone, 9-4-5. So all of this, again, is familiar language to us because we often read these passages at Christmas time. We think about the coming of, of Jesus, okay? And then in chapter 9, verse 6, we pick up on that theme of a child, Okay, so that goes all the way back to 7.14. Here's the promise of a coming child whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. It's fulfilled in a contemporary child, and Judah is delivered in that time, time frame. But then Isaiah says, but there's more to that prophecy than just the birth of Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. There is the coming uh, king uh, that is described here. Okay? So 9.6, this theme of a child is picked up again. And the point in these verses is really the same as as in 7.14. There is a hope of a future deliverance, a greater deliverance than the temporary deliverance from Assyria. So we are described a king, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, so... What, what the Lord is doing is, again, promising that this 
future king is going to bring a far greater deliverance than in any current situation. Judah is going to be delivered from Assyria, but it will not, uh, it will not be an eternal deliverance. Ahaz will not be an eternal king. There's a better king coming, okay? We'll move on here and, and finish this out, okay? So in chapter 9, then starting in verse 8, all the way through 10.4, it returns us to judgment again. And Israel, that northern kingdom, is specifically in view here. Uh, we see here that the people, they've been judged, but they're still proud. Um, and four times in chapters 9 and 10, so these, this 9, 8 through 10.4, the Lord lists the specific sins of Israel and then says, For all this his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So they refuse to repent is the, the, the issue there. <clears throat> Chapter 10 focuses in on Assyria. So they are the instrument of judgment the Lord will bring against them. You can see that like in 10.12 where the Lord says, when I'm done with judging uh, Judah and Jerusalem and Israel, I will turn my attention to Assyria and I will bring judgment on them. Verse 13 thinks, uh, is, uh, Assyria thinks they are proud. Uh, or they are proud. They think we've brought this judgment, therefore we, uh, nothing can stop us. However, in verse 15 of chapter 10, the Lord corrects this thinking. He says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Right. So Assyria is the axe. Assyria is the saw. The Lord wields them in judgment. They have no right to boast uh, about themselves. So 10.19 says that Assyria will be devastated. Um, look at, uh, so in, in chapter 10, verse 20, where we move forward to a future restoration, here you have a returning re- remnant. Um, and I think this restoration spoken of here is a lot like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So the, the promise of the new covenant um, 10, 28 through 32 pictures for us a progression of judgment through the land. Uh, 10, 33, here's another uh, tree imagery as the Lord is seen as the one who is lopping off the bows of the tree in terrifying judgment. So I, this might be a connection even back to, you know, in Isaiah six thirteen, Israel is pictured as a felled tree. The judgment is the Lord lopping off the bows. Of that tree, so you think you start in the top and just cutting it down, okay? So this this pictures, but then we get to eleven one, and that tree imagery picks up again. Uh, so remember, the only thing that's left of the nation of Israel as a tree is a stump, and what do we see in eleven one happen? Out of that stump comes a shoot, right? If you've ever had elm trees, you know, like they're the worst thing in the world, right? And, and you can cut it down and whoop, right? So, so like, maybe that's a good, that, that's why it's a helpful imagery, a, image, right? So this is what happens. Israel's a, a, an elm tree, and out of it's going to come a branch. It's, it's sure to happen, okay? Um, so this stump of Israel is now described as being of Jesse. Well, who's Jesse? David's father, right? So we're, we're narrowing in on, on the importance of this person. From this stump comes a shoot, so you get a new little bit of growth. That shoot turns into a branch which bears fruit. And then verse 2 tells us this branch is not just a branch, but it's a person, right? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
right? A specific person. So then we're described the character and rule of this person in 11, 2 through 5. 11, 6 through 9 describes a transformed cosmos, like Creation itself is changed under the rule of this person. Creation has reached its pinnacle. 11.9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal that God has, is that the whole earth is filled with his glory. And then verse 8, notice this, and, and uh, I found, I was, as I was reading and studying on this, this is from Jim Hamilton. He made this observation, which I thought was really profound. He said, this altered state of affairs looks almost Edenic. And then a statement is made that indicates the curse of Genesis 3.15 will have been removed. Remember, Genesis 3.15, there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, okay? So he says, it seems to have been removed. That verse, 11.8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is a picturesque way of declaring that after judgment on God's people, through which they are brought to salvation, there will be no more enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Why else would a child be able to play over the hole of a den of an adder and not be harmed by it unless that curse is gone? Right? That's, the, that's the, the thing that is being indicated there. This transformed cosmos is not just in nature itself, but if you look at 11, 10 through 16, describes ethnic harmony. Hear that image of that, uh, that language of a signal being raised. Before it was raised in judgment, now it's raised. All the nations are streaming to it, right? Uh, all the nations are coming to, uh, to Jerusalem, and they will inquire of the resting place of the root of Jesse, and it shall be glorious. Israel will be reunited. 11.16 uses this language that describes the return from exile like an exodus. Right? So just as exodus uh, before, there will be another one where they're brought back into the land. So all of this leads to chapter 12 where Isaiah rejoices in song. Right? You will say in that day, well, what day is he describing? The day he's, or what day is he talking about? The day he's just described, right? You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry, angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation, right? So all of this glorious truth leads to rejoicing and leads to praise and a song.